Hi, everyone. Oh. Yeah. Hi, all. Thank you again uh, for being here. We're going to get started. So I never introduced myself. I'm Julia Long. Um, I work for the City Club of Cleveland. And this is our panel on Captain Marvel. And I just broke the microphone. Um, so joining us, we have Peter Coogan, who is a director of the Institute of Comic Studies. He's also the author of Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre, which has been cited thousands of times. So we're so glad that he was able to make it here from St. Louis to be on our panel. Sitting next to him is Dr. Vera Camden, who is a professor of English at Kent State, an assistant professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University, and training and supervising psychoanalyst at the Cleveland Psychoanalytic Center. So, round of applause. Up next, we have Valentino Zulo, who is the, a teaching fellow at Kent State University and the former Ohio Center for the Book Scholar in Residence at the Cleveland Public Library, and also an maternal depression therapist at the Ohio Guidestone. And then we have Whitney Porter rounding out our panel, who is a teaching fellow as well at Kent State University and the current Ohio Center for the Book Scholar in Residence at the Cleveland Public Library. So. Thank you all for being here um, and making me look unqualified with my one job title. <laughs> so I want to get started. There's a lot of people in the audience who are very probably familiar with Captain Marvel's long history. Um, and there might be some people in the audience who have just seen the movie or haven't even seen the movie. So um, can one of you, I know you're all experts, but can one of you give us a quick history or context about Captain Marvel. Yeah, Go. <laughs> All right. Um, Captain Marvel was born Carol Danvers in 1968 in a, in a Marvel comical model fanfare. Um, yeah, Marvel. it was Marvel fanfare, right? Is Am I getting that right? Now I'm doubting myself. Okay. It's like <laughs> issue 13. And is it Marvel fanfare or is it Marvel? No, it was part of Captain Marvel. No, not Marvel yet. Superhero not Marvel Superhero 13. That's what it. 1968 Marvel Superhero 16. Uh, 13. 13. I'm messing this up already. Um, the following year, she's she is around an explosion when the original Captain Marvel is fighting a a supervillain. Um, she the energy from this explosion enters her body. Um, eight years later, she becomes Miss Marvel. For like seven years, seven, eight years, she doesn't know that she's a superhero. But Marvel needed a female superhero to lead their comics with the success of the Linda Carter Wonder Woman series, and along with other female superheroes that were, that were coming about, like Isis, the Bionic Woman, there was a lot of attention to, to women superheroes because of second wave feminism. And in, do you want this closer? No, no, and also Marvel and DC were trying to make sure to capitalize where She-Hulk came from, because they realized that the other side could grab these names. Yeah. So they yeah. made female versions of various yeah, heroes. Yeah. No, so that's exactly right, yeah. So 1977, Miss um, Marvel is, uh, Captain Carol Danvers becomes Miss Marvel. She's the editor of Woman Magazine, a, hum, a, a nod to Gloria Steinem's Miss Magazine. So she has a long, very convoluted history, which I'm going to ignore until 2012, when she takes on the mantle of Captain Marvel, and that is the character that we know today. Kelly Sue DeConnick uh, recreates her history, revises her history, 
Carol Danvers's history and creates this character that then led the the super the the movie from last week. Yeah. And again, one of the reasons that she got that title was because DC was going to try to claim it original Captain Marvel for Shazam and Marvel wanted to fight them off about that so they promoted her. So the thing you have to remember these are commercial products from corporations. So I want to dive into that a little bit more. Um, True or false? She-Hulk was created to fulfill a copyright and not for any other reason. Um, I didn't see some squinting, so um, maybe not. (laughs) Yes and no. I mean, yes and and no because um, between 1977 and about 1981, there was a push for uh, comics books led by women. Spider-Woman, Miss Marvel, um, She-Hulk, Dazzler, uh, Red Sonja. There's like a bunch of them. So yes, I mean, they wanted to get the copyright, but it's also like they were cashing in on second wave feminism. Cashing so in on second wave feminism. <laughs> <Yeah>. There's our <laughs> quote. <laughs> um, so to expand a little bit more on um, kind of current day Captain Marvel and a lot what's being talked about in these reviews is there's all this comparison to Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And you briefly mentioned Captain Marvel's very convoluted history. Um, and in my eyes, Captain Marvel is the antithesis of Wonder Woman. You know, Wonder Woman was created literally from the earth to be perfect. Um, Captain Marvel is not perfect. Can um, either of you talk? Can you talk about what makes her not perfect, and um, you know maybe why Captain Marvel followed Wonder Woman in being a movie, a live-action movie, I should say. You seem to have stumped us. Well, let's let's. So no, 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 no. I think I think we can answer this. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say? So I, um, I have trouble with calling her the antithesis of Wonder Woman. I think, I think that's how you stumped us, is the notion yeah. that there's an antithesis okay, but there. Yeah. Why, yeah. Why, why not? Um, I understand the image of Wonder Woman as perfect, and she does come from the Earth, but I don't think that Captain Marvel is somehow different. Flawed, flawed, yeah, or, or different. I mean, Wonder Woman also, she does have her flaws, but um, I think Im- importantly... Well, okay, so what I want to address first, I guess, is this. I, I don't, I get a little bit irritated when we compare the two. Yeah. So, so and watch out. Yeah. <laughs> because of oh. secret powers. <laughs> no, tell me more. Why, why should we not compare the two? Why? Because they are, I, they I are being compared. I mean, I don't, I don't understand. It's not like we, we go around saying, well, Spider-Man is the neurotic yeah. version of, of Superman, which he is. But <laughs> 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 well, he I is the neurotic version of Superman. The idea is that we don't necessarily pit the two female uh, superheroines. I think they're, they're, the, they're the only ones we got right now, at least in the, in the circulating in the popular culture. And I think it's, um, it's rather typical but unfortunate to take the two powerful superheroines and need to uh, polarize them when in fact in certain ways you could understand them as being complementary um, because certainly Captain Marvel uh, is, is, is brought down to earth to rescue uh, to some extent uh, the w- worldlings and so is uh, Wonder Woman. So in some ways they're complementary, I, I think we would say. Yeah, absolutely. And not, not so much uh, pitted against. We don't want to have a fight 
of the two Titan women at this point. We, we need to save them, and they need to save each other. Well, and I think, too, um, we've seen a lot of that on social media, a lot of this fighting back and forth. I'm, you know, Team Wonder Woman or whatever, like a whole Twilight all over again kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, Gal Gadot reached out to Brie Larson and sort of congratulated her. And I think that's the kind of spirit that we should be, you know, embracing rather than trying to compare the two and think about their differences because I think it's a good point you make that we don't do that with the with the male superheroes. We're not going around being them against each other. Although structurally they are in many ways oppositional because Wonder Woman comes down from the gods to the earth, right? I mean she's made out of clay from the earth. But basically her powers descend whereas and, and it's intentional, right? She's created, she's given these powers. It's all intentional. She's created this way. Carol Danvers, you know, this alien thing explodes. She gets, absorbs the DNA of Marvell, and they, so she gets her powers by accident. And then she doesn't become a superhero until, you know, Ms. Marvel, which again, you know, connected to the whole publishing thing. And then she goes through a whole series of changes. Wonder Woman has gone through changes over time. But she's always been Wonder Woman. She's retained that. There was a, a bit in the 70s where she lost her powers, although she was still published under Wonder Woman comics. Whereas Captain Marvel, or uh, Carol Danvers rather, you know, she was Ms. Marvel, she was Warhawk, she was binary, she lost her powers to Rogue. Rogue is running, Rogue's an excellent man. She's running around with Carol Danvers in her head. She got kidnapped and went to another dimension where this she. This is the history I was trying to ignore. Yeah, where she. <laughs> but 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 that's what I'm saying. When you see them as opposites, Carol Danvers is human who's raised up to the god level, whereas Wonder Woman is, is god a god who lives yeah. at the human level. Carol Danvers is a soldier. Wonder Woman is a soldier. They're both in the military, but there is a kind of structural opposition between the two. Although both, and we're going to talk about this in a, in a bit, are both I call superheroines rather than female superheroes, but we'll get into that. Or not. Or not. So Peter, let's expand. So there was a one little line there and to kind of bring it back to the movie. And so for people who um, maybe are, and I, I'm by no means, by no means a comic expert, but talk a lot about this with you all. And surprisingly, our chef at the City Club is a comic fiend. So. Um, there's a lot of differences between what happened in um, the movie and they kind of clean up a lot of that history um, between this decades-long history and storyline of Carol Danvers. Um, do you, so you mentioned how in the comics, you know, she absorbed the powers of Marvell. Mm -hmm. Marvell is not mentioned at all in the movie. Obviously, you know, they have to shorten up history because it's a movie, but do you, or do you think that they shortened it? Do you think that's going to come out later? What's, is there significance there that they kind of cut out a significant part of this um, history? Well, I, I think just for the purposes of making a movie, they cut it. I don't think they'll go back because it's far too complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, the way they solved it was making the Annette Benning character Marvell. Because they do call her Marvel towards the end. So I don't think there's going to be like a reveal. I think they solved it and made it easier because it is too complicated. For those of, the, of us that have read this for years, it's far too complicated. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I stumbled immediately, you know, because it is far. It, it, I don't know. I mean, it, it, they reduced it down to its basic elements, which, the, which film does ex exceptionally well. 
And I think that they just said, okay, like, we're going to make Annette Benning Marvel, which is interesting because then her powers technically, like Wonder Woman, come from a woman instead of, yeah. um, you know, instead of a man. What's the significance of having her powers come from another woman other than a man? <laughs> and I'm going to ask all of you to maybe continue to hold your mic up so when you're making yeah, yeah. comments, yeah. The, the crowd can hear one it. Of, one of the things with that is that in the original origin, you know, she gets her powers by accident. And she, she's not, she's not, she doesn't incite the incident. Whereas in the movie, she is going to blow up that engine it's a heroic sacrifice. She can f you can see where she could fully expect to die. She's going to blow up this alien engine, mm -hmm. and then she absorbs it. And what's interesting there is that um, Ron, what's the, um, I can't remember his name. Anyway, the Kree soldier Jan who's Rog. there, Yanrog, he doesn't, he also gets blasted by it, but he doesn't absorb it. So it's a, her humanity that ends up giving her the powers, mm -hmm. not her alienness. Mm -hmm. So superheroes always blend the one and the other. So you have the human and the animal in Batman, the human and the alien in Superman, and so forth. So here you have that human and, and, and power alien, but it's her humanity that enables her to become a hero, not the alien. And that's, that's unusual in superheroes. Usually it's the alien part, the other part, that is incorporated into the one, into the human. So mm. th that's uh, a big difference. And well the fact that it comes from a woman also is different. Well, in the um, Deconic version of her origin story, too, um, Carol is talking about how in the moment that there's this explosion, she's imagining how could she be more powerful? How could she handle this? How could she take this on? And the explosion or the, the whatever, it, it becomes like a, a wishing machine, she calls it, in the comic. And I think that detail, seeing the movie, I just kind of put that in there. <laughs> like while I was watching the movie, I was like, that's what's happening. I'm okay with that. So I think if you're, you know, seeing the movie without having read the background, um, you do still get that sense because it is a female giving her her powers, you have that sense of, of female empowerment that has to come across. Oh. I mean, you can answer it. I would have thought in some ways it rather goes without saying that it's more powerful as a feminist, um, you know, uh, uh, film, and certainly the comics as well, to have the power come from the woman, as Virginia Woolf says, you know, we think through our mothers, and I think that also is, uh, if we are women, she says, and I think that also is really present in Wonder Woman, that her message is one of love and one of a, of a different sort of, um, it's a different frame and it's a, there's a different legacy that emerges and it certainly doesn't exclude the, the paternal or, or exclude the love. I mean, the Samuel Jackson character, I can't remember his name, but he's quite a, what's his name? Fury. Fury, Fury. of course, Fury. I mean, he, he's, what's that? Nick, Nick Fury. Fury. Nick Fury, yeah, right, right. So, you know, he's very inspiring and very much a mentor to her, but I think there's a, a sense in which that sort of celebration of female relationships, I think, is, again, very timely, and, it, and it, uh, it, it's, it's central to the film. 
Yeah, I think just I would I would agree entirely, and I think to bring it back to comics for one second, like the actual comics, um, it's a story that was is often so neglected in comics to see women passing on the mantle to another woman. I mean, it's almost unheard of. Um, there are examples. There are characters that often will vanish after a certain time. Catwoman gave um, has given on her mantle to other women three, four, five times now, they all disappear afterward. Um, Wonder Woman doesn't really have an heir. Um, you know, but we, I mean, how many Green Lanterns are there? How many Flashes are there? How many Superboys are there? You know, it's very common for the male heir to have a male heir from, a, you know, another male superhero, but not very often for one woman to pass on power to another, except with Captain Marvel and the character of Miss Marvel, yes, Com with Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel. So let's talk about that a little bit. So, um, you know, characters passing on their powers, characters passing on um, their legacies. Um, you know, Peter, you and I, right, right before this, we talked about kind of the iteration yeah. and um, how do these iterations come about? One of the things that's specific to superheroes is iterations. And just real quickly, like, uh, you can have different versions of Sherlock Holmes, but it always goes back to a canon, right? And but with superheroes, you have these different iterations. Every version of Batman is Batman. No Batman is more Batman than Batman. All Batman are Batman. <laughs> um, so it doesn't matter if you're talking about the George Clooney version, or the Adam West version, or the Denny O'Neill version, or the Bob Kane and Bill Finger version. They're all equally Batman. And what that means is, as Michael Keaton put it, you put on the suit and it does the acting for you. Because you have the code name and costume and the identity, that identity can be passed on. And so every generation can have its own Batman, its own Superman. But what it also means is Jay Garrick, the Flash, can pass on to Barry Allen, the Flash. And in this case, you can have Carol Danvers as Ms. Marvel, and that gets picked up by Kamala Khan. And she's not related to the Kree. She's not related to any of that. Clearly, it's a way to keep the publication going. but. That Ms. Marvel is as much Ms. Marvel as Ms. Marvel is. And, and this is the important thing. Carol Danvers is Captain Marvel, is Captain Marvel. She's not a lesser Captain Marvel because of the specific thing of passing on the identity through the code name and the costume. And then the powers are usually attached to that. But they don't have to be. They don't have to be the same. And that's something specific to the superhero genre that, that doesn't exist in other things as much. Yeah, then it, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about with the Ms. Marvel uh, series is the way that Ms. Marvel, who's a young Muslim girl in the, in the Bronx or Queens or wherever she's from, is it? Um, so Jer she's South Jersey. Jersey, yeah, in Jersey, yeah. that, that she is uh, not going to appropriate the more Anglo identity of, of Captain Marvel, but rather will embody her power in a way that is unique to her personality. I think that, too, is a rather unique moment in the evolution of this, of this superhero, that she has a ethnic identity that is her own, and yet she's you know, deeply involved in her um, you know, activities that are so virtuous. But she does it in a way that is very unique to herself. And she actually finds the costume. Isn't it true that she finds the costume of Captain Marvel rather awkward and develops yeah. her own costume. So yeah. in that sense, she she doesn't put on the same costume. Yeah. She has her own costume. I think that's very, very important from the standpoint of ethnic identity and cultural identity. That is, 
that is, um, you know, not cast off, but rather sort of redesigned, if you will. Yeah, it's a if you have if you don't know the character of Kamala Khan, it's a wonderful scene in the first issue of Miss Marvel. Um, where she leads um, the series, um, where she does morph into the Carol Danvers character the, the, with the, an older costume, and she makes a comment as a, a very active critique of the superhero genre, saying, you know, I don't want this long blonde hair that gets in my eyes, and these boots that slip, and this, and this bathing suit that gives me a wedgie. It's an active, you know, critique of the genre, but also, you know, finding her own, as Vera's saying, with um, you know, with her emerging her identity, her identification with this powerful woman, but bringing in her own ethnic upbringing, her own ethnic history. So it really has a kind of a maternal, yeah. right? I mean, isn't that what we all hope to do with our parents? That you, you know that you're, you're the product of your parents, but you're also yourself. Yeah, right? yeah. So there absolutely. is a kind of a maternal yeah. line that comes from that. And, uh, and it's, in, it's in Wonder Woman, too. You know, she takes on the costume of the American citizen, if you will, but she takes the power from her mother. And it's, very, it's, a, it's a common trope. I mean, G. Willow Wilson is entirely immersed in the history of Wonder Woman, so I do think there is, like, a connection A there. legacy, yeah, yeah, that's very important. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say that in that transformation moment, too, she sees, Kamala sees Captain Marvel as sort of a saint, figure, right? There's that really beautiful yeah, image of her like in the sky and she's um, has like something draped on her and you know Captain Marvel gives her the okay to still be herself mm -hmm. and I think that's really the, the key moment in that transformation mm -hmm. and that she doesn't have to be the same Miss Marvel who we had before and that we can evolve. I, I think it's, that's a really interesting point because I agree with you, Peter, that all Batmans are the same, and then I don't think that's true when race and ethnicity come in. Because as Vera was saying, with Kamala Khan goes to Jersey City, you'll notice when a, when a hero um, of a different racial background or different gender enters, they go to new places. Kamala Khan goes to Jersey City, um, Miles Morales goes to Brooklyn. Um, the white superhero generally is in like Manhattan proper. Maybe with Spider-Man they go to Soho, okay? <laughs> like that's the interesting thing is they go to Soho. So I agree and then I don't because I think when you add in these other layers, like you know, um, Iceman's going to gay bars, you know, like Spider-Man's not going, and he's always going to Hell's Kitchen, you know, um, in a different way than Daredevil's going to Hell's Kitchen. I mean, obviously, Daredevil and Iceman have no connection, but I mean, the point is, like, new landscapes are introduced when sexuality, gender, race are added to the superhero, which I think the superhero welcomes. I think comics yeah. welcome difference. I think that's the great thing but about that. But them. getting back to Ms. Marvel um, and, and not getting too distracted, yeah. uh, <laughs> the, 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 the whole tradition of comics has been so male-dominated that I think that, you know, many of us, anyway, really welcome an opportunity to have a discussion of the of the emerging female superhero. We're trying to uh, to embrace that and celebrate it. And one of the things that has happened, of course, is that there's been this sort of battle on the internet about this poor movie that wasn't even released, and then the, the it's already being attacked before anybody has seen it. So although it that's changed, Ms. Marvel sparked. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb and all these sites it's to say, sites. no, we're not doing it. We're not going to let that happen anymore. You can't just post stuff if you haven't seen it. You, you know, you, you can't. They, they took 
that trolled them. They kind of, I don't think they killed it, but they definitely shoved it back under the bridge, as it were. <laughs> um, and, it, and it's because of Brie Larson speaking out, which is one of the reasons why it was getting attacked. And so that's a really interesting moment in which the superhero, because it could have been done before, right? They could have done it with Star Wars. They could have done it with lots of movies that got attacked. But I think it works well with the superhero because Brie Larson comes out as a kind of a superhero. And so playing the superhero enables her to take a position in the real world that maybe wouldn't be open to characters to actors who are playing characters in other genres in the same way. It's easy to see Brie Larson as a superhero. Just like, and this is why Chris Evans, he also does similar things. He's like, Captain America wouldn't like that. And you get it because he has that tight identification. So there's a carryover. So have we seen, so I guess kind of two things. Have we seen, um, well, it seems to me like Brie Larson really took the, the offensive for when she decided to be Captain Marvel. Like she knew that this was going to happen. And um, I, I read one article that made me a little annoyed but said like her um, posting of her workouts were on, like she is just as strong. And um, you know, she got a lot of backlash for um, requesting underrepresented journalists to interview her. And so she definitely played, or I'll ask, did she, do you think she purposely played a, l a line where she's like, I'm strong, I have these obvious characteristics that a superhero has, but I will also bring in this other um, other side of it, this more maybe like progressive lens? Um, and, you know, you mentioned Chris Evans, but do we see this happening more of actors and actresses, or just actors in general, taking on like the mantle of who they play? I mean, I think it's so important that she did it, um, but I just... There are a lot of actors who prepare in similar ways for their roles, but the significance of what Brie Larson has done and continued to do um, is huge, especially with, um, you know, sharing her workouts and posting that, you know, her body is strong, and that changes the narrative for women um, immensely. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I am, I have like one foot in the superhero genre. I'm not 100% yeah. in there. But when I saw Captain Marvel, I was in tears, and I couldn't believe it, because like I didn't, you know, I didn't expect that. That's not really my my thing. But just seeing somebody, a woman on screen, go through girlhood, you know, in so many snippets, and go through things that I've experienced, you know, you're too strong, you're too vocal, you're too this, and she does it, and she gets up every time. And people have said, you know, that's hokey, that's that's cheesy, whatever. It's not. We never say that. And girls do get back up all the time. And I love that about her. I think um, I sent you this. Um, <laughs> Kelly Sue, I think I can, um, Kelly Sue DeConnick swore, so I'm going to quote her. I think I can swear at a bar. Um, Kel Kelly Sue DeConnick summarizes Captain Marvel and Captain America. She says, Captain America gets up again when he falls down because it's the right thing to do. Captain Marvel gets up again because fuck you. <laughs> Which I love. That's like a poem. That's a bit of a it's, like a, it's like a haiku. It's a haiku. Um, I love that. That's, that's awesome. Um, so let's, let's kind of broaden the scope a little bit. I know that we're here um, to talk about Captain Marvel, but I think there's, there's a lot more just in general in comics to talk about. And so um, Dr. Hammond, you mentioned that you know, there's not a lot of 
woman representation in comics. Um, behind the scenes, that always hasn't been true. Can we talk a little bit? Does someone want to talk a little bit about the history of women creating comics? So I, I say this a lot, um, and we've talked, Vera and I have talked about this a lot when we teach comics. Um, it's a false narrative to say that women have never been in comics. It's a, it's a story that's often told every 30 years or so, because there were a lot of women in the 1940s that were writing and drawing. And there have always been women. I mean, do, there's, I don't mean to say that there hasn't been intense misogyny. But every so often we'll be like, <coughs> there'll be women writing and drawing superhero comics and in behind the scenes, or just any comics in general. And then, you know, we have the Comics Code Authority in 1954, and then we and the women are gone. Then in the 70s, some women come back, and it's like this big celebration. I remember there's an issue of Spider-Woman, I think it's issue 45 or something, where one of the, one of the uh, in one of the letters pages, the editor says, and we're going to have a woman write this female character for the first time. And I was like, but this isn't the first time. And we do this so often, where every 30 years or so we say, oh, this is the first time women have written comics. And, it's only, and it, it, it proves how great the erasure is. That's what it proves, is how well it worked to erase these stories and the history of women in comics. Because they've always been there, and they keep, and, and they keep coming to the surface, not in the way that like a major billion-dollar billion movie has ever before, but they've always been there. But we've we're proven how easily they're they're erased, and it's just I mean that is more of the story I think that is that we need to remember is how actively they're put into the archives and forgotten about. And even when the editors think this is the first time, but it's not. That that sort of reminds me. Um, there was an article I think it was in the New York Times. Um, late at the end of last year and it's called down with the year of the woman and it, the whole commentary was on the fact that um the author who i'm is slipping my mind right now but she said somebody said to her you know oh it's we've had this great year for women um because with all of the sort of marches and movements and and the me too movement and all of this and and she's like what are you talking, like, why do we only get a year? <laughs> you know, like, why is this only a year, and why is it the pink wave? Why is it, you know, why is it not like, okay, we're changing the tides now, like, it's not a moment. And yeah. I think that relates to comics, yeah. too, right? We have these moments, but it's really not the truth. Right, right. Just, um, I know, I'm just going to interject really quick. It reminds me of N.K. Jemisin, who's, you know, the great sci-fi writer. She has a book, I believe, and it's called, um, when, I, I'm going to get the title wrong, but the idea, she's like, when is Black Future Month? And I feel like that, too, like, when is women, like, it's Women's History Month? Well, when's Women's <laughs> Future Month? <laughs> Which I think is such an important question. When, when is that? Now that you reminded me of that. Um, so... Going from that, talking about how you know we don't, this isn't, shouldn't just be a moment or things like that. Um, you know, Dr. Kim, when we all met up, you had mentioned how this same um, uh, m forward movement and backlash is happening in literature, and you mentioned how there's kind of this like alt right revival on Reddit that's talking about um, reviving misogyny in literature. Your words. Yeah. Would you care to elaborate? Well, this was just an article that I read to my horror in the Times Literary Supplement about a group of alt-right um, uh, individuals who are attempting 
sort of very sadly to revive through a kind of pseudo uh, reading of the classics, Homer, Aeschylus, Sophocles, um, you know, the, the great gamut, Sappho for that matter, I suppose, but I mean, this the great gamut of the classics, uh, much, much of which has a kind of male privileging, as we know, you know, the, 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 the Greco-Roman tradition has a kind of male privileging that you, that you can study and try to understand through art, through literature, but this, this very strange but uh, apparently quite powerful alt-right group is trying to sort of go back, so to speak, in a kind of nostalgia to an early, um, to an early misogyny and a disempowering of female uh, figures and sort of say that this is the way that it ought to be. So it's, it's quite, uh, quite astonishing. This, this is a major book that came out of Oxford saying that this has to be sort of recognized for what it is as a kind of anti-intellectualism. But I think what's kind of interesting about it is that it's cast in a kind of pseudo-intellectualism that if we go back to these um, really kind of astonishing theories, primitive theories really, of humanity where the woman has no soul or where the, 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 the uh, relationships between men are the relationships that really matter, that kind of um, image uh, or that kind of tradition uh, is, is quite, quite frightening to think that it might be revived. So uh, that, that was what I was referring to uh, in, uh, in uh, the popular culture kind of appropriating academic culture. So. I'm going to ask one more question, but I want to invite you, if you have a question that you'd like to ask, to start making your way up to the front. Um, so coming on with that, you know, we, we discussed the, the role of trolls and how um, Rotten Tomatoes actually took away the power to review a movie before it comes out. And, you know, YouTube actually changed their algorithm. So all these videos kind of bashing Brie Larson were replaced with more promotional videos. And, you know, they said that it was just a refresh of their algorithm. But... This is really, I think, the first time that I've seen online, uh, at, like online chat room things, um, actually change the way they do things to reduce, you know, sexism, any any of the, the isms that we all know. Um, you know, we've seen Twitter be kind of pick and choosy about what they block. Um, you know, we have our fair share of problems with Facebook. Why? movies? Why Captain Marvel? Why is this all of a sudden? Why after um, Ghostbusters, Black Panther, I, you know, uh, Star Wars, why now? I think part of it may be Brie Larson you know, took it on as a project. Um, but another thing is because it's they pr it was predicted this time. I mean, I, I don't know that it wasn't predicted with Black Panther, but you know, when when Danny Glover was uh, um, posited as a Spider-Man, you know, they got all that attack, and, and 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 I think that's part of it is that that now they knew it was going to come. But I think the other thing is that if you if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Captain Marvel comes out, and it means she's going to be there. She's going to be in the next movie. She's going to be in the next movie. You know, she's going to be there for a while. Whereas opposed to like, yeah, Wonder Woman, and it got a sequel. But Wonder Woman is not part of this massive thing. And this massive thing is this transformation of the way movies are made. Marvel, you know, everybody wants a, a universe. And so I, I think it's part of that that I, I, I don't know that this is true, but 
this would seem to fit, that because it's part of that bigger franchise, and then it means it's going to be ongoing, that they could, they could see that it was a chance to, one, do something about it, but also because it was going to happen and keep happening and keep happening. And I imagine there are people who are just sick and tired of having to deal with that. But part of it also, I think, was Brie Larson coming out and stepping forward and enabling it to coalesce around it. And then it happened, right? Because if it hadn't happened, it wouldn't have changed. But it did happen. So. so so I would sort of take a different tack, although I don't think there's one answer. How do we know? But I would take a different tack, maybe a more culturally optimistic tack, and suggest that um, that it's it was a moment where the culture is, precisely as, as Pete said, sort of sick and tired of um, being sort of railroaded by a kind of bullying on the internet. Facebook is trying to change their algorithms, not just about Captain Marvel, but about a lot of things that uh, have obviously turned out to be very corrupt, right, within, within their, um, I don't know enough about it to speak to it, but I'm just suggesting that I think there might be, might be, if we're optimistic, a cultural shift away from these kinds of, of hate speech, hate crime, bullying on the internet, and so forth. I mean, that would be hopeful. And I do think with the Me Too movement, there's a sense in which um, there, has, there has been a speaking out and the attempt to bully, um, you know, in this case, uh, a superheroine is not, is, not gonna, is not gonna fly, so I don't know. I uh, have some pessimism to bring into that, <laughs> <laughs> as you would expect. No, I, I, I mean, I agree with you that I think that there are changes happening um, for women's rights in general. Um, but then I do think about a film like Black Panther where, you know, there's a lot of racist comments, lots of hate speech, lots of negativity, and it's really not talked about. And that's where I get kind of, I don't know, I guess I just get angry about it because it's like, that's not enough to stop that kind of speech, but we'll do it for Captain Marvel. And I'm glad we did it for Captain Marvel, but it is interesting to see that we didn't do it um, when the hate speech was racially motivated. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have to go after all these. It's, com it's a complicated answer. Um, I agree a little bit with everybody in the sense that I think that it was predicted. I also think that most importantly, Brie Larson took it on. Like she said, I am going to address this from the, from the start. Um, I also think that we are in a different era, um, meaning that you know we're in a post Me Too era, um, and I think that that means that you know we are paying more attention. Um, I don't think I think you know we do need to pay attention to racially motivated things too. Um, I think there's that, and I also think that um, it's. I mean, I really, th I, I mean, I, I, I go back and forth about this. I'm not sure. Sometimes I do think it's, it's, it's the fact that Brie Larson is, it's imagined at least, and it's suggested by the stuff that's coming forward that Brie Larson will, will probably lead the Avengers. And I think that that is a very scary thing to know that the Avengers are going to re be replaced. I mean, it's not scary, but to some people it is. <laughs> I should, I should, I should say that. Um, that the new that the Avengers are going to be Black Widow and Black Panther and Captain Marvel, and to some people that's very scary that it's not the trifecta of Thor, Iron Man, and Captain Marvel. And for some reason, and I think that I think 
it's all of these things. I think Marvel understands that. I think Brie Larson took it on. Um, I think we're in a post-Me Too era. There's a lot of factors involved. Um, and I think that at this moment, and you know, Brie Larson has a lot of power too as an Oscar award-winning actress, as a woman that has taken on sexual assault in Hollywood going back before Me Too. I mean, she had to stand there when, when, the, uh, when she was humiliated at the Oscars when they gave Casey Affleck an award and she had to stand there on stage and not clap for him because she was supposed to give the award for best actor. She's been fighting this fight for a long time. So it's not a new fight for her. But I definitely think that it was a lot of, it coalesced in her. And she is strong and she wanted to be, a, she really takes on that mantle of the superhero. So I give her a lot of credit for it as well as the social factors that have changed. It wouldn't have been the same two years ago. So all of the above. <laughs> All right, uh, so now is the time for questions. Um, I'm going to move the mic onto the floor so you can access it better. So if you have a question, just line up. Hello. Hello. First time doing this kind of thing. Uh, well, in the in the Captain Marvel, mo uh, with Black Panther having been get, got a lot of attention, the Oscar nomi the Oscar nomination for Best Picture and all that, uh, there's you know, in Captain Marvel they introduced Monica Rambo. Ram I don't know if I'm pronouncing yeah. mispronouncing yeah. her last name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the thing is that she also bore the mantle of Captain Marvel before Carol Danvers. With this discussion on that, they predicted the 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 controversy that would come simply by having this movie. Do you think that the reason they cast Ca they chose Carol Danvers first is partially because they knew if they used Monica Rambeau, it would cause even more controversy and wouldn't be as marketable? It's a would it be a was it you know? No, I I would say actually that is more to do with the Marvel mythos because uh, Captain Marvel, the title Captain Marvel, it died. And so the, 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 the name was just out there floating around, and so they, they stuck it on a new character. But she wasn't connected to the whole Kree thing and the Skrulls and all of that. And Marvel, moving forward now, movie-wise, they're moving out of this phase, and they're going to move into the bigger sort of Jack Kirby-verse with the Eternals and the Inhumans and all of that stuff, that it, you, know, you needed the Kree to connect to it. It wouldn't have made any sense to have um, Monica Rambeau as Captain Marvel because and she stopped being Captain Marvel because yeah. it just, I remember when that first came out, I was like, this doesn't fit. It just didn't feel right. Not that she was a woman with the name Captain Marvel, but because it doesn't have anything to do with Marvel, right? right? It's disconnected from the mythology. So I think it was more about that. All right. It's just, I just, I also recalled that, uh, that her origin was si a little similar to how Karen Danvers received her powers. She was trying to stop a similar court of, you know, explosion event and she was also exposed. So I did, you wouldn't have to change much, is what I'm saying, to just to put her in, you know, in, mm. in terms of the relevancy. Because no offense, she Captain Marvel until this movie wasn't as pop culturally known, sure. so you could have finagled uh, the, a different Captain Marvel, is what I'm. S that's. Mm -hmm. but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think they oh, do make a real, and this is one of the differences now, especially with Marvel Cinematic Universe, is they make a real attempt to incorporate the mythos. There's, lo there's lots of little things like Project Pegasus. I remember I read Project Pegasus in the comics that came out. It was a, a six issue arc in the Avengers that had nothing to do with what it is now, but they're able to use and reuse those things. So to shift that greatly, it, it just, 
they need the resonance of the mythos, I think, for it to really work. And, and, and I like the way in the movie that they incorporated lots of different little bits of things. So All right. That was just my, my question. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm, I'm afraid I've never seen these films, and I haven't read about them. I've never read the comic strips. But I was wondering, uh, do they address pertinent social issues, and can we learn from them, like, like I have this book here, everything I need to learn, I learned in the Twilight Zone. Are they really, re are they really relevant from that respect? Yes. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, I'm not the superhero expert. There are certainly others on the panel that are superhero experts. Um, but I would say even just reading one volume of Captain Marvel by Kelly Sue DeConnick, there's a lot of issues that are tackled head on, particularly issues of women's rights, feminism, that kind of thing, um, that are said in very unique ways and very empowering ways. And it's, it's very exciting to see um, as a woman and former girl. So <laughs> um, I think they are, they are important. I, I agree, um, and I think um, one of the the, the storyline that surprised me the most in the Captain Marvel movie, um, and I won't get into the details of how the scrolls are portrayed in comics, but the fact that they were a metaphor for the refugee crisis in this movie, which was really astonishing to me that they pulled that in. There are these there's these characters who have been displaced because of war, and they're asking us to to empathize with them to understand that they're that they're not at fault for the you know the powers in their in their on their planet starting war between these two starting a war like they they're not at fault and they are refugees now and that was a really moving part of the story i thought that was not in the comics yeah one of the really interesting core scenes just picking up on what valentino has just said is a reuniting of a family that had been separated because of their uh, going into hiding because of refugee status. So they, they are finally reunited and the father can return to his children. So that's really very moving. And another thing I think apropos that is that to the extent that Captain Marvel is a leader and has the power, she demonstrates that, she's capable of changing her mind when she sees in the face of human suffering and in the face of the uh, sort of um, description that the, that the refugee uh, is able to uh, help, help her uh, hear his story or the story of his family. So the power of narrative, of course, brightens me up that by telling the story and by showing the um, anguish of the separation and the injustice of the war, she determines to stop the war. And she determines uh, this on the basis of what she sees and what she feels. That's, that's really wonderful to see a leader uh, change their mind and understand things with more depth and more uh, compassion. So I think that was pretty cool. Yeah. Hi. Um, I w uh, know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to know if you thought actors and actresses have any kind of responsibility to audiences to really live out their characters, um, especially in 2019, and if so, really, you know, what is that responsibility? Where do they draw the line? And is it really fair, ethical for, for us as a society to actually expect that of, of these um, artists? Thank you. I have opinions on everything I can answer. Um, 
No, I mean, I think it depends on the role, which is sort of a cop-out answer, but it's also the truth. Um, but, I mean, if you're taking on a character like Captain Marvel, you do have a responsibility because it's a big deal. Um, it's a pioneer kind of film. And we have Wonder Woman, and that's it. So there is a responsibility, and Brie Larson knew that. I mean, she knew that, and she embraced it. So I don't think it's unfair to expect that of her. Um, and she's also very human and very open, and I think that's important, too. She does not try to be superhuman um, in real life, but she uh, ends up kind of seeming that way anyway. Um, and I think, you know, it might be different for somebody playing Batman. The responsibility really might not be the same because we don't necessarily hold Batman to very high ethical <laughs> standards. So. I, I would think that the actors in our midst might take some exception to that notion. I mean, I'm thinking now less as a, I suppose, superhero, social, conscious, whatever, and more as, uh, you know, more as a, a literary critic. I think it would be too much to expect an actor to sustain a role. Every actor, I think, wants to play a part that is a challenge um, so that we have our very, you know, tender uh, actors who long to play the villain to see if they have that range within their acting capacity. So, I mean, I may be in the minority here, but I really feel that an actor really is, should be devoted to the work that he or she has been assigned. And if that happens to be a villain or that happens to be somebody who isn't virtuous, well, then I would want to play Iago for instance, and would, with, would do so with, with relish. If I could, I can't, but I would love to. Um, so, you know, you, you want to play Satan, you want to play the Joker, um, and you shouldn't be held to some formal role. I mean, that's just, you know, sort of, again, my opinion. But um, I think to some degree it's different with characters for whom the audience has ownership. Now, we don't have literal ownership, right? These are literally owned by corporations, but... You know, uh, Captain Marvel's been around for 50 years. You know, I have a lifelong relationship with Captain Marvel. I have, you know, uh, with all these characters, we have these things, and, and they are folkloric in that sense that people take them and make them their own. Um, and so, you know, when, when Henry Cavill plays the man from UNCLE, it's not that big a deal. But when he plays Superman, there is a sense in which he's taking... Uh, possession of something that is kind of owned collectively. And so I think that it's not necessarily a responsibility, but kind of an opportunity, because that will continue to live on and on and on. And they, this isn't just an acting thing, because, you know, they show up at conventions and they sign you know, uh, they sign things and they make money, uh, especially the lower level actors will, this will become a thing for them. And it, it changes them. Uh, Harrison Ford said this to the new cast. He's like, get ready. It's about to happen for you. Because this is a thing that then becomes a part of them, possibly, for, for life. And because the audiences, the fans have such an attachment to it, they, ha they have invested themselves. And it's that investment that produces the billion-dollar return. And so, in, in a sense, with these kind of movies, I, I think that at least the actor has to consider that they're stepping into something that's bigger than a single role. 
Uh, I'd like us to think about two things, two, two ideas I have. One is the theme, which uh, Brie Larson plays the character. She is being trained to be strong. How is she trained to be strong? She must forget her childhood. She must forget all memory. She must erase it from her mind. And in the end, her salvation is she remembers and becomes a human being. I mean, I'd love a discussion on that point. The second point is to comment on the sexual tension in the movie. Now, there's no outward sex in the movie unless you consider Goose swallowing that thing a sexual <laughs> act. How, however, there is a sexual tension between Brie Larson and Samuel Jackson. You know, she's kind of flirtatious. He's definitely flirtatious. Nothing happens. But the last line in the movie is, where's Fury? We have to find him. You know, and that's the next movie. So if you could think about those thoughts and have some discussion, I'd love it. Um, so regarding your first comment, um, I do think that that's what makes um, the movie interesting, is that she, refi she finds her humanity. I think it's what makes most comics interesting, is that um, at the core, I mean, they are about these human relationships. Um, I think comics are moral. I think comics are about human relationships. And I think more than a lot of other um, stories we see today, I think they have the most humanity in them sometimes. Um, in response to the sexual tension between Fury and Captain Marvel, um, I don't know. I, I resist that. Um, I think that they are a, a buddy pair. Um, she wants to know where Fury is because she gets called by that device, and she's like, okay, you're ca Fury's calling me. Why isn't he here? Um, I don't know. I have a hard time with it because that isn't to me what the what's going on there in fact i i i resist it because i liked i'm interested in the movie because there isn't romance it's very interesting that there doesn't have to be a romance in this movie which we rarely see for a female-led movie in fact snl did a whole skit where if marvel did a female-led movie that it would be like black widow black widow sex in the city type thing and so it is really nice to see that we didn't need that now they have a really great chemistry but i don't think we have to see that as sexual i think that they have a wonderful chemistry I'm talking about sexual tension. Okay, well. Under the surface. Okay. <laughs> we're we're going to take these last two questions. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to the panel for your discussion today. I thought you raised a lot of really interesting points, and you've given us all quite a lot to think about. Um, I wanted to open this back up a little bit more into a more general question. Um, we are here to talk about representation and diversity in the cultural zeitgeist as a whole. So, and you did briefly mention, you know, when is Black Future Month? When is Women's Future Month? What I'm really interested to hear is going down the panel, what minority character, not necessarily from superhero, the, the superhero mythos, but in general, in, in the cultural zeitgeist, what minority-origined character would you be interested to see revitalized and how? What would you like to see elevated to the level of a Captain Marvel or a Black Panther? 
I'd like to see an Egyptian Dr. Fate. Um, Dr. Fate is a, a friend of mine uh, talked about this, that it's, it's the out of Africa thesis, right? It's the colonial thesis because frequently, and this goes back to uh, the shadow and, and some other pulp figures where they go to you know, the, the colonies and extract the unused resource and bring it back to, you know, um, uh, to the mother country. And, and so frequently with Africa and with Asia, you have these white men who go in and take the thing, the magic power that the natives aren't using, you know, they're not using this resource and take it back and become a hero. Dr. Fate is one of those characters. He, he goes and he gets his powers, uh, I, you know, in Egypt. And so I'd like to see an Egyptian Dr. Fate. I'd like to see, uh, the same thing happened when Dr. Strange came out. You know, you have this, this Brit playing an American who goes and it's the same thing. Make Wong Captain Marvel. You know, make it, make it at least an Asian American who then goes and, 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 and gets the power. But something like that. But an Egyptian Dr. Fate, that's what I would like to see. So that, that's a really challenging question because it sort of, at least in my line of work, it invites me to free associate, which I'm sorry to say I do quite easily. Um, th these days I didn't used to, but I've, I've learned to do so. And I just immediately free associate to my own uh, early viewing of the world of Susie Wong. Uh, which is a film most of you probably haven't seen, but it's a movie that romanticizes the prostitute in, um, in Hong Kong. And I happened to uh, visit Hong Kong when I, was, when I was little, and I was very sort of taken with, even at a young age, the tragedy of, um, you know, the Asian, the portrayal of the Asian prostitute, frankly. And so I would love to see a sort of M. Butterfly uh, a rendition of the world of Susie Wong where we really hear Susie's story. So I, ha I hate to sort of bring in such a, a tragic theme. The film, by the way, is not tragic. It very much romanticizes this. But I do think that with sex trafficking and with the situation of Asian women and other women of other cultures, um, I would love to see some kind of portrayal of the reality of that and the reality of some kind of uh, redemption or, 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 or uh, even revenge, frankly. So <laughs> it's not a very pretty picture that I'm painting, but you know, given that some of the most powerful men in our country apparently are, are, are you know, supporting Asian sex massage places and so forth, I, it's, 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 a, it's a topic that's dear to my heart. So yeah, that's, uh, sorry, you asked, you got it. <laughs> Um, mine won't be nearly as moving. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm the character that came to mind first. I'll go with her because I was thinking of different people. But um, I'm right now in the in in comics. I'm really interested in this character of America. She's a queer Latina woman. And um, s the recent author that wrote her series, it wasn't very good, but she's a super interesting character. And I and what what interests me in particular was that after that her series came out in like I think February 2017, and Marvel announced it in the fall of 2016, and it was this big statement because they were putting on the front cover of this comic America, and here was this woman who was queer Latina, 
and in, it was a really big statement like this this is a, this is America she's not Miss America she's not Captain America she's just America and I would love to see her or a variation of that character enter the Avengers and get her own story because it will bring as I was saying earlier about new landscapes I mean all this will bring us into new landscapes in film that I, in the superhero c movies that we haven't yet seen so I would love to see her get a movie um, I have sort of two answers. So the first answer would be, uh, bitch, planet the movie, yeah. please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That'd be my yes, first yes. answer. But my, my second answer is um, not necessarily about something being adapted into film, but just maybe us um, devoting more attention and time on the raw, more marginal kind of works that are out there that are beautiful and amazing and queer and delicious and everything. Um, my thing is, is monsters. That's my my love, right? So I love the margins and the dark corners and the weirdness, right? So I would just say, like, pay more attention to those kind of weird things that are circulating. Look more closely at them. Um, we have, you know, my favorite thing is Monsters by Emile Ferris is now becoming very popular, but still kind of in that marginal space. And that's where I say, like, let's look more closely at that stuff. We don't have to necessarily rehash what's been done, but, like, let's look at what's out there in the the peripheries. In the gutter. In the gutter, yeah. <laughs> Our last question. Um, sorry, I'm tall. Um, so actually, Whitney, I think uh, that's a good segue into my question. So uh, you all talked uh, a little bit about, um, you know, like the, the sort of problematic history and eraser of female creators in superhero comics. And one thing that I've been noticing, especially lately, is that, you know, Superhero comics for sure dominate comics. I don't think anyone will question that, but it seems like so many of the conversations that we have when we're talking about comics in general are actually maybe specific to superhero comics. So is that problem with female erasure, is that um, true to comics outside of superhero comics historically, or has there perhaps hopefully been a stronger female presence in other comics that aren't superhero, maybe comic strips and, and those types of things? Yeah, I mean, um, definitely. Um, and I say we start with, we can start with women's comics because that's a good starting point. There are people before, but I mean, you have um, all kinds of comics creators, you know, coming together there who are not even um, necessarily cartoonists to begin with. Right, the medium is reaching people and having them tell their stories. So outside of this sort of mainstream, you have lots of women telling these amazing stories, amazing, beautiful stories. And I mean, um, that's why I'm sort of inclined to look there because it's not so polished and pretty, and uh, I, I like that. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot out there. And I mean, you think about um, Persepolis is now mainstream, but you know, Marjane's Troppy and um, Linda Berry, right? Alison Bechdel, none of these people are telling us about superheroes, right? No. <laughs> but they're telling us beautiful stories. One of the things that, I don't know how many of you know Alison Bechdel's um, uh, graphic memoirs, but one of the things when I had the great fortune of being on a panel with her, uh, someone asked her about superheroes. It was a good question, too. It was about superheroes in the body and the way that she portrays the body. And she just answered that when people mention superheroes, her eyes glaze over, which was very funny for her to say. But it does kind of I answer your question that, you know, and, and Valentino is really the expert on this, but, you know, there was a moment in the 50s, right, right around the McCarthy era, where comics were also part of a congressional investigation, and they, and they were, and they were, 
banned for various, um, you know, violations of, of what was perceived as normal in the 1950s, which wasn't, you know, much. Um, so, in in that sense, there was a uh, there there was a there was a, an underground that was sort of established, you know, sort of later in response to that, and in that underground uh, emerged great comics that were not following the superhero tradition, but rather had a very different sense of what humanity was, among which, of course, you know, emerged Art Spiegelman and, and the great graphic uh, narrativists that, that, we, that we study now. So I think that the effect of that was to create almost two traditions within comics, which, which would be the, the more uh, dominant, um, you know, corporate version that, that, that Pete, you know, studies, and the, uh, the underground and then the graphic na narratives that emerge from that. So I just want to add, because John is sitting right there, but he's told me multiple times, he said, don't ever forget that, these, that all of the nonfiction, all, non all of the graphic memoir is um, built on the blood of the superhero. Yeah. That the comics industry survives in its current state because of all of us that buy the superhero comics. <laughs> and because of that, you know, Barnes & Noble becomes invested in, in comics. So, oh, you have a comment, yeah. <laughs> the money that he makes selling superhero comics, which he's very proud of, and I'm always proud of selling superhero comics, helps us to push forward the things that we would like to see pushed forward. And there are a lot of great superhero comics out there, and there still are. But never confuse the two. Um, they both live together to create what we want them to create. Thank you. So they both live together to create what we want to create. I think that's a great ending note. John, I wish that you were mic'd up so we could all hear it. I just wanted to yeah. tell him thank you again for bringing the comics. Um, I know you were going to announce it too, but there's comics over there. Um, but thank you, John, for dropping off all the Captain Marvel comics for us. And the <laughs> other other one. Yeah, um, it, it, this tells the story. There was this very very strange story in Avengers 200, uh, where Carol Danvers basically she gets kidnapped. This is a. If you want to hear this story, this is the story. If you want to hear what happens in Avengers 200, come and talk to us. Yeah. Okay, we don't but need to announce it. To the but world. this is where they bring her back. <laughs> Yeah, this is yeah, and it's a response to what happens in a very terrible comic by yes. a very lazy writer. Yeah. And <laughs> this is this is a this is a wonderful comic written by one of the most amazing creators of all time, Chris Claremont. But he's responding yeah. to a very lazy he's writer's story. He's undoing a horrible thing that happened to Carol Danvers. Yeah, and ev now everybody really wants to know that.
First Rogue and Scarlet Witch is also a lot of uh, important female aspects of that book, but it highlights on the cover Avengers vs. X-Men. That is not what happens. What happens is defending what has happened to Captain Marvel and the, the disrespect she received from the Avengers, but you don't see a battle. It's a philosophical battle. I was nine years old when I read that book, and it influenced me a great deal. So... So come and grab, grab it and find out for yourself what happens in this comic. <laughs> you can also yeah. search for it. Um, one last, sorry, one last thing. Ahead. One more promotional thing. So um, Vera and I um, are the American editors of the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, which is just an academic forum to talk about comics. Um, it's more than that, but we're just going to call it that. Um, we, um, we have a special issue coming out on Wonder Woman and female superheroes. In particular, there's a highlight, um, of an artist, um, an artist creator, Trina Robbins, who has an article on 1940s women creators um, that were writing around the same time the one Marston was creating Wonder Woman. And so as soon as that comes out and we have a link, um, we can attach it to probably to the, the, the City Club. Yeah, book, we'll right? share it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So look <laughs> for that soon. <laughs> awesome. Um, so if you want more reading, you can come and talk to um, any of our panelists or grab the pamphlet up front. If you want physical reading, come grab a comic to my left. And uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you, John. Thank you, the Happy Dog. Uh, this adjourns our forum. <laughs>